This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you're here, you don't have a copy of the scriptures, if you'll raise your hand and leave them up, the uh, ushers will bring you a free copy of the Bible, you can take it home with you today. We want you to be able to follow along and read a lot of verses from the Old Testament. So leave your hands up, they'll bring you a Bible. Turn with me please to 2 Samuel, we're in a series on 1st and 2nd Samuel, today we're in... 2 Samuel 11, a well-known story about King David and Bathsheba. Merry Christmas. Second <laughs> Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and didn't go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. My Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And, even, and in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. 
And in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him. And he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he signed Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city came out, fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah, the Hittite, also died. And then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. He instructed the messenger, When you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one, now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, David sent, brought her to his house. She became his wife, bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. And I believe the Lord wants to say to us today that we can trust him to forgive us our sins. I've read this narrative, this story many times, but preparing this message and diving in maybe a little deeper than I had in the past, something really struck me like it never had before, and that was the man that David murdered. Verse 3 Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? In David's last words recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 23, he lists his mighty men. You may have read about them. The last one mentioned is Uriah the Hittite. The last man, David's last words, A mighty man. Uriah was a hero of David's. He was a Medal of Honor winner. That's why in our text here that we read today, he can be put in the forefront of the hardest fighting 
and you can draw everybody back and he stays. He's a mighty man. You can put him right there where the most valiant warriors of the enemy are. Draw everybody back and he stays and fights. He was the kind of man that when the arrows start flying and everybody else runs, he stays. Remember that Marine commercial a few years ago? There are a few who move towards the sounds of chaos, ready to respond at a moment's notice. When the time comes, they're the first to move towards the sounds of tyranny. They're the few, the proud, the Marines. And you want to jump out of the couch and say, sign me up, man. Except you're a chicken. (laughs) We celebrated a true hero Friday. George H.W. Bush died. The 41st president. He was from a wealthy family. When World War II broke out, he could have avoided military service but he voluntarily joined. When he was sworn into the Navy on his 18th birthday, he was the youngest pilot in the Navy. He flew 58 missions off an aircraft carrier in World War II. It's a little bit tricky back then. He flew an Avenger torpedo bomber. He had his girlfriend's name painted on it, Barbara. After the war, he married her, and they were married for 70 years. Until she died earlier this year at 92. At one point, his plane was shot down. Two of his crew members in the plane were killed. He was miraculously rescued by a submarine just before the Japanese captured him. Had he been captured and imprisoned, he most likely would have died and there would have gone two presidents. You can actually watch the video of him being rescued. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. He was a mighty man. Uriah was like President Bush. He was that kind of man. That's what struck me. He was a warrior. He fought the king's enemies. He had courage. He had skill. It made him easy to murder. His concern was not for himself. It wasn't for his comfort. He was living for something much bigger than himself. I want to be like him. He served his commanding officer. He served his fellow soldiers. He served his king. Now we read in verse 2, Bathsheba was very beautiful. The Hebrew here. The word used in the original language 2 Samuel was written in. It's drawing attention to her appearance. She was physically attractive. We can assume Bathsheba could have been the wife of many other men. And we can also understand why she wanted to marry this guy. David, his king, told him to go down to his house Relax, take a break from the fighting. He slept at the door of the king's house with his servants. And we're told why in verse 11. His, his heart 
is with the ark of God. His heart is with those he serves. I will not do this thing. What a guy. That's the man who was murdered. And it, it just struck me. So today, think about that. What, what can we take away? It just makes David's sin all the greater, doesn't it? We can take away some things from this text that I think will help us. This downward spiral of David into sin can help us. Three points today are sins never escape the Lord's notice. Our sins against other people are sins against the Lord. And our sins, though they're forgiven, may still bring unwanted consequences into our lives. We're going to end with the Lord's Supper. And be reminded we can trust the Lord to forgive us our sins. Number one, our sins never escape the Lord's notice. It's amazing, isn't it? We end chapter 11, verse 26, with maybe one of the most understated sentences in the Bible. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You have this impression as you're reading through the narrative, he got away with it. The last sentence, understated, he didn't get away with it. Nothing David did escaped the Lord's notice David didn't get away with it as hard as he tried. The Lord saw it all. He saw everything. He knew everything. Everybody else was duped. David did a phenomenal job. He poured himself into the cover-up. It didn't work. Look in chapter 12. Verse 1, the Lord sent... Nathan, the prophet, you may remember him, to David. He came to him, he said to him, a parable. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him, and with his children used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup, lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. There came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who'd come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who'd come to him. David is taking the bait. Hook, line, and sinker. Verse 5, David's Anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then a very memorable verse. Verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. You, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. You did it secretly, verse 12. The Lord saw it all. He saw it all. The Lord knew about his crimes. The Lord knew about his sins. It was all done secretly, but the Lord knew it all. Nothing was hidden from God. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says this. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature, verse 13, is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. David's Sins and crimes were done in secret, but he was naked and exposed before God. And the Word of God, this is what the purpose of God's Word is. One of the things the Word of God will do, it exposes us. Nathan is an Old Testament prophet. His prophetic word is the Word of God. You don't judge it. You don't evaluate it. This is the word of God. Nathan's word is the word of God. And it comes, it's sharp, it's living, it's piercing. It comes to us through these scriptures and the same is true for us. There will come a minute when the Lord will say, you are the man. You ever had that happen reading the Bible? 
You are the woman. The Word of God exposes our thoughts, our motives. Psalm 33, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds, knows all their thoughts, the motivations. Now before we go to point two, is the Lord saying, you are the man, you are the woman? I felt impressed that there would be people here today who are covering up sin. This is actually a wonderful moment for you if that's true. God is present when his people gather. There's a special promise for that. And the Lord is present today. It's not the Christmas carols. Maybe it is. It's not the Christmas carols. It's his presence. It's his word. There's some of you here, maybe, maybe there's someone here and you're covering up sin. And the word of God is to you today, just like it was to David from Nathan the prophet. The word of God is, you are the man. Do not let that go by. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the pastors. Talk to whoever you came with this morning. Don't cover it up anymore. This is a gift from God to you. Number two, another thing we can take away is our sins against other people are sins against the Lord. The Word of God comes to David and what he sees is not just his crimes as bad as they were. He killed his hero. He raped his wife. Took his wife. He raped Bathsheba. He used his position of power. Like this, but he, he sees all that. But even deeper, he sees he sinned against the Lord. We're going to look at Psalm 51. It's a meditation. Psalm 51 is a meditation written by Dave. We're going to conclude today looking at this. It's a meditation on 2 Samuel 12, 13. When Nathan the prophet came to David. It's very specific. And in that psalm he says, Against you, you only have I sinned. doesn't mean he doesn't understand his crimes. He just understands what's most significant. To harm other people is to sin against the Lord. David abused Bathsheba. He murdered Uriah. And God is the judge of all sin. This, this makes these crimes worse. Now think about it. What, what happened here just last week? Jake was sharing about how kind and good David was to Mephibosheth, 
to Saul's descendants, what happened? How did he spiral out of control like this? Well, verse 1 says it's the spring of the year. Kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and all Israel, and he stayed home. Israel's leader didn't go. And then one night, one late afternoon, his, his house would have been higher than any other building in the city, and he's walking on the roof. It was like a deck or a porch. And he could see, and he sees a beautiful, very beautiful woman bathing. And you see this contrast with Uriah describing the soldiers and his commander Joab. They're living in a field. He doesn't even want to go to his house because it bothers his conscience. You see this contrast between the king who's at leisure, relaxing. He seems to have learned this lesson that when things are going well, when you're prospering, you can send the army and stay home. John Flavel wrote a book called The Mystery of Providence. He has this word for those of you who have to work a lot of hours every week. If, if any that fear God shall complain that although they have a calling, they have a job, yet it's a hard and laborious one, which takes up too much of their time, which they would gladly employ in other and better work, I answer that it is likely that the wisdom of providence foresaw this to be the most suitable and proper employment for you. And if you had more ease and rest, you might have more temptations than now you have. The strength and time which is now taken up in your daily labors which you serve God, might otherwise have been spent upon such lusts in which you might have served the devil. And that's why we love John Flavel, don't we? That's why we love the Puritans. They're keeping it real. Oh, you're belly aching about how many hours you have to work. John say, oh no, that's the providence of God. He knew about you. Watch out, watch out, watch out for the test of prosperity. Join us December 30th. My friend and your friend, Ray Ortland, is going to be with us. After the meeting, we're going to talk about retirement. Come, and we're going to yell at you and say, don't retire, you fool. That's, that's not what Ray will say. He'll be very, very nice. He'll be very kind. Bathsheba was purifying herself from her uncleanness. It was after her cycle, and she was bathing. And so, under the circumstances, the baby just could not be Uriah's. So David, when he saw her, he sent messengers. He, he was obviously aware adultery wasn't a right of a king, and he sent these messengers to check on Uriah's family. And then he raped her. He started by breaking the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Then he broke the 7th commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And finally, he broke the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. 
The Lord was silent. He saw David's behavior, secret activities. But our sins never escape his notice. And our sins against other people are sins against him. Finally, number three, our sins may bring unwanted consequences into our lives. When we see here the word of God calling David to account, you're the man, you've despised the word of the Lord. David confesses, he's broken and contrite. I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. But notice that because of his crimes and sins, the, the Lord says he's going to experience misery in his own house. And we'll see this in 2 Samuel. The sword's never going to depart from your house. Verse 10 of 2 Samuel 12, For you have despised me. You've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. There's consequences. And it, it's a very sad story as you walk through the end of this book. He's forgiven, but there's consequences. Repentance brings immediate forgiveness of sins, but the consequences that follow are determined by a sovereign God who's all merciful but sovereign. Older believers like me will say, you know what, we're doing better than we deserve. Because of His love and mercy, we have not often experienced what we should have. We should have had worse consequences. But we should never presume on the grace of God. We shouldn't think there'll be no consequences for our sins because we're forgiven in Christ. We should never think that way. We don't know. I've been in pastoral ministry for several decades now and have had more than my share of moments where a spouse has been caught in adultery. There are always consequences. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians who were a sexually immoral bunch. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. A godly grief. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces repentance, a true repentance that leads to salvation or life without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. My pastoral experience is that in cases of adultery, there is always worldly grief over the consequences of adultery, of sin. Things like the spouse leaving, children angry, friends disappointed, feelings of shame, guilt, and this grief can be very intense. It usually is very emotional, sobbing, weeping. But that doesn't necessarily mean it leads to true repentance. 
you'll read about in Psalm 51. There isn't always a godly grief, a godly grief. If the Lord is saying to you today, you are the man, truly repent. See that your sin is against the Lord. In verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 2 Samuel 12, I have sinned against the Lord. Verse 13, and, and Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. You won't die. Psalm 51 is a meditation on these verses. Turn over to Psalm 51. And read the title with me. When Nathan the prophet went to him, to David, after he had gone into Bathsheba. It's very specific. This is a psalm about the moment that Nathan confronted David. David breaks. He becomes contrite. and confesses his sin. What's amazing is that Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. He forgives you. It's outrageous. <laughs> Bathsheba was raped. Uriah was murdered. The baby will die. And just like that, David's sin is put away. He committed adultery. He ordered murder. He lied. He scorned the word of the Lord. He scorned God. And the Lord just puts away his sin. That's, that's how we should be looking at this. What kind of righteous judge is God? You don't just pass over rape and murder and lying. Righteous judges don't do that. We'd be outraged at God's behavior in this text today and in Psalm 51, except for one thing. Advent. <laughs> except for Advent. The coming of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul understood the outrage. Totally agree with your outrage. And in Romans 3, he explains how God could be both righteous and the one who justifies murderers and rapists. And it will open up 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and Psalm 51 for you. If you read some of the most important sentences in all of Scripture, Romans 3, 25, God put Christ forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice that reconciles God and man by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. 
in Jesus. God is gracious to forgive ultimately because of Christ. Jesus, his once and for all sacrifice, his life, his death, it purchased forgiveness. It provided righteousness. We share in this forgiveness. We're going to celebrate it with the Lord's Supper in just a minute. And ushers, hang on, I'll tell you when to go. They're on the edge of their seat, ready to serve. This outrage we feel when God seems to simply pass over David's sin would be good outrage if God were simply sweeping rape and murder and lying and deception and scorn under the rug. But he is not. He sees from the time of David down the centuries to the death of his son, Jesus Christ, who would die in David's place so that David's faith in God's mercy, David's faith in God's future redeeming work unites him to Jesus Christ. In God's mind, he knows it all. And David's sins are counted as Christ's sins, and Christ's righteousness is counted as David's righteousness. And so God justly passes over David's sin. Listen, the death of God's only begotten Son is outrageous. It's outrageous. The glory of God that it upholds is great enough that God is vindicated in passing over David's rape and murder and lying. Jesus' death on the cross turns God's wrath to God's favor. His holiness wasn't compromised. He can forgive sinners. He can forgive King David killing his mighty man, our hero, the good guy in the story. God's righteous anger needed to be appeased. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He didn't turn a blind eye. He killed his son. And that's why the cross is the central message of all of Scripture. And now I would like to release the ushers to go to the table. In Psalm 51, not yet, not yet, choir, not choir, musicians, not yet. This is a very complicated communion service today. (laughs) Psalm 51, I just want us to let the Lord do something here through his word. Psalm 51, verse 1 and 2, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Think about 2 Samuel 12, 13. It's a meditation on it. Wash me, verse 2, thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. There are three words in those two verses dealing with the nature of sin. Sin, iniquity, transgression, 
They all have meaning. There's three words talking about the effects of sin. Blot out, wash away, cleanse. They all have meaning. We don't have time to get into it. There's three words describing the nature of God. Have mercy, have grace, love, compassion. Verse 3, Psalm 51, I know my transgressions. Imagine that. Imagine what he meant when he said that. Do you think he thought about Uriah the Hittite? I, I know. Maybe you came today Okay, go ahead. Let's go ahead and have the musicians come up because these guys are taking over. They're, they're right, actually. <laughs> Can you try to listen carefully and look at these verses while the guys are distributing the elements of communion? If you came in today and you know your transgressions, think about King David. That's the message. We can trust the Lord to forgive us our sins. David says in verse 3, my sin is ever before me. You may feel like that. Many of you do feel like that, and today I think the Lord wants to set you free from that feeling. David isn't concealing his sin anymore. He's not excusing his sin. I know my transgressions. I admit them. Because of the grace of God, because of the cross of Christ, because of what Christ has done, today we don't have to hide. We don't have to hide from God. We don't have to try to cover up our sin. We can say, verse 4, with David, against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. My conscience bothers me rightfully. The word of God condemns me rightfully. But I trust in Christ for forgiveness. I trust in Christ today that his righteous life will be counted as mine so I can be reconciled to God. I don't have to run in fear. The Lord forgave this murderer, this rapist. The Lord forgave him because he punished his sins on the cross when he poured his wrath out on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now please stand. I'm going to pray for you and then we're going to return to singing. Before I pray, I'd like to invite the choir to come up. Father, thank you this morning for this Advent season. Thank you for all these songs. Thank you for your word that just reveals to us what you have been doing for centuries. What a joy it is, Lord, today on this side of the cross to look back and consider 
the time period of King David and then consider the birth of Christ and know that he came to die for our sins. Lord, thank you, and I pray today that you would pour out your spirit and everyone in this room would experience forgiveness and now we would sing appropriately with joy for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.